0: Hello and welcome to episode three of the BV Magazine June podcast with me, Terry Bennett and me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, in our farming feature, George Hosford talks about hares and beavers and Andrew Livingston opines the state of the poultry sector. We have our book corner with Ray Winston offering his selection of books inspired by, on the one hand, a fascination with cows and on the other, the life of a country doctor. In local history, we have the tale of a local vicar in the early 19th century. And in health, foods that can help you combat allergies, including pineapples. And our usual feature from Izzy Anwell from Dorset Mind on how to use the season of celebrations to reach out and check on others.
1: Farming. Hares, beavers. Rolling Down a Hill and the Fear of What's Coming by George Hosford. Seven or eight hares constitutes grazing pressure equivalent to how many sheep? When does the hare population shift from I like to see a few of them about to I might have to consider doing something about them? But when our friend Alan Wicks produces the sort of photos of hares that he does, I just want to celebrate. They look like a bunch of greyhounds racing hell for leather around a track. But what would the hares be chasing? A stuffed whippet on a piece of string? I think they're just doing it for the sheer fun. Alan tells me that he's seen them rough and tumbling in a heap sometimes. I know that some areas suffer from much larger numbers of hares than we do, and that action does indeed need to be taken, but here hair numbers have been low to modest for as long as I can remember. What's the key factor that limits them? There is, after all, no shortage of food. Has it been due to the presence of too many predators of the leverets, like buzzards and crows? Or is it that we've been too successful in controlling small weeds and crops, which I've long understood are vital for the survival of young ground-nesting birds? Surely a young hare can graze on wheat from the day it's born? As farmers, it's very difficult to get the right balance between a few weeds sufficient for skylark and lapwing chicks – and a wipeout of a crop due to runaway weed infestation. The chemicals we use are very efficient at their job, and if you use reduced rates, you risk encouraging resistance to the sprays in the weeds. All too often, when walking, biking or paddling along local rivers, one comes across weirs and sluice gates that are woefully neglected. How much of the flooding that so many tears are shed over and millions of pounds spent clearing up after could be saved if the rivers were better managed. Current river policy seems to revolve roughly around rewilding. Oh, and let's bung in a few beavers for good measure. There won't be any flooding then. How long, though, before a dislodged beaver dam gets washed down to a dodgy old bridge, turning it into a bigger dam, causing flooding upstream or a tsunami downstream following its collapse? I'm sure those responsible for intelligent advanced planning have borne all this in mind before launching into the great beaver release gamble that's approaching. At least five such releases are planned for Dorset. No one seems to operate the precautionary principle anymore. There are numerous tales of beaver trouble from Scotland, whereas so often they're ahead of us in this game. But has any notice been taken? Apologies for all the questions this month, but does anyone have any answers? Oops, there's another. Luckily for me, I live on a hill. The school visit season has now begun, and so far in pretty cooperative weather. Sometimes a group will bring a picnic, after which they'll enjoy running or rolling down a nearby hill before resuming their tour around the farm, asking plenty of questions along the way. Didn't Mother always say you should let your lunch go down before such exertions? Whatever you might have thought of Jeremy Clarkson in the past... Since he began sharing with his huge audience the trials and tribulations of learning to farm, he's surely been a force of good for the industry. His first series from his farm Diddley Squat was highly entertaining and brought tales so familiar to long-suffering farmers to the attention of the population at large. His piece in the Sunday Times on the 15th of May is worth looking up. His publicising, in his usual entertaining style, What our NFU president has been trying so hard to ram home to our wise and wonderful, apparently clueless leaders for months since the war began in Ukraine about the impending crisis in food prices and availability around the world. What he doesn't get round to is pointing out all the micro decisions we're making at farm level to control risk and to preserve our livelihoods, which are very likely to result in reductions in production. Speaking to many farmers, it's easy to find those who've reduced their usage of fertiliser this year, accepting that output may fall. This year could be okay. Many bought fertiliser at what now seems giveaway prices, and we can currently sell grain, milk and meat at prices well above where we were a year or two ago, uh, with apologies to pig and chicken farmers. Ask about next year, though, and you get blank looks all round. How do we make sense of such a huge change in circumstances? Should we buy very expensive fertiliser for next season now, if we can get it, and back it up with cracking forward grain prices? Unfortunately, that doesn't work in the meat markets. Or do we wait and see? In terms of the environment and climate-damaging emissions, it couldn't be a better time to rein back on fertiliser applications and test the result. With the ongoing war, though, shortfalls in exports of grains from Russia and Ukraine are suggesting the opposite should be done. At farm level, I suspect we're likely to be cautious, with production likely to fall.
0: Pigs, then chickens. Who's next? By Andrew Livingstone. You don't have to be a fortune teller, clairvoyant, or medium to know that things aren't looking good for the future of farmers. The signs have been pretty obvious over the last year that certain sectors in agriculture are now on a downward spiral. Late last year, I wrote of the serious issues in the pig industry that had led to farmers protesting about the lack of action from the government. Farms went out of business. It was a dire situation. Yet to this day, pigs are still sitting on farms waiting to be killed and butchered. The NFU stated in March that 40,000 pigs had to be culled and thrown away because of a lack of butchers to process them. The additional seasonal workers sent over did little to save the situation. The meat processing industry says there is a shortage of about 10,000 butchers. The diverse nature of farming means that agricultural managers and farmers in other sectors can sit back and say, not my problem. But it's the wrong attitude. Sticking your head in the expensive grain isn't helping. Farmers can look to history for guidance, and surprisingly to Nazi Germany. Stay with me on this. A famous poem from German pastor Martin Niemeler explains why silence is as bad as being complicit. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. As with the socialists, the crisis in the pig industry continues, without headlines, but it is the egg industry's head that currently rests on the chopping block. Supermarkets are adamant that they will not pay more for the eggs on the shelves, as they believe their consumers won't either. The industry met at the annual pig and poultry fair in Stoneley last month, and the British Free-Range Egg Producers Association invited representatives from eight of the major retailers For a crisis summit. Not only did none of the retailers attend, only Tesco's and Morrisons even bothered to reply and engage in conversation. Free range farmers are asking for 40 pence a dozen extra, just to be able to survive. Supermarkets argue that shoppers won't want to pay 40 pence extra for their eggs, while market research from the egg industry disputes this but retailers will soon have to pay more than 40 pence extra. Farms ordering new pullets since the war in Ukraine are already downscaling and some are simply not bothering to place birds at all due to the costs. As fewer birds are placed now, fewer eggs will be in the market in the future. Bird flu last winter wiped out hundreds of thousands of hens in the UK, meaning that egg numbers are already low. Eventually, the number of eggs in production will be so low that supermarkets could be embroiled in bidding wars for anything to sell on their shelves and will naturally pass the additional costs to the consumer. I can't see the future, but as an employee in poultry, I can see the worrying signs of what's to come for the egg industry. Once we have all packed it in, you have to ask yourself, who is next? Book Corner as it's such a pleasure to share books at events, both in the shop and out and about, I thought I'd bring a couple of books to your attention that have the authors visiting Sherborne in June. Wayne Winston from Winston's Books in Sherbourne. Taking Stock, A Journey Among Cows by Roger Morgan Grenfell, £16.99. Since Highland cattle ransacked his grandmother's vegetable patch when he was six, Roger has been fascinated by cows. So at the age of 61, with no farming experience, he signed on as a part-time labourer on a beef cattle farm to tell their side of the story. The result is this lyrical and evocative book. Cattle have existed alongside us, fed and shod us, quenched our thirst and provided a thousand other tiny services, and yet most of us know little about them. We are also blissfully unaware of the denatured lives we often ask them to lead. Part history, part adventure, and part unsentimental manifesto for how we should treat cows in the 21st century, taking stock asks us to think carefully about what we eat and to let nature back into food production. A Fortunate Woman, a country doctor's story by Polly Morland, £16.99. Polly Moreland was clearing her late mother's house when she found a battered paperback fallen behind the family bookshelf. She was astonished to see inside an old photograph of the remote, wooded valley in which she lives. The book was A Fortunate Man, John Berger's classic account of a country doctor working in the same valley more than half a century earlier. This chance discovery led Moreland to the remarkable doctor who serves that valley community today, a woman whose own medical vocation was inspired by reading the very same book as a teenager. Interweaving the doctor's story with those of her patients, reflecting on the relationship between landscape and community, and upon the wider role of medicine in society, a unique portrait of a 21st century family doctor emerges, illustrated throughout with photographs by Richard Baker. On June 30th, Wayne invites you to join him for an evening with Polly Moreland. Enjoy a glass of wine, a talk and a signing. Tickets, just £2, redeemable against the book.
1: Local History A Right Religious Racket It was November 1828, and in two parishes near Blandford, ripples of discontent were spreading among the faithful. Someone felt strongly enough to take their feelings about the Reverend Thomas Racket, Rector of Spetsbury and Charlton Marshall, to a higher authority. On November 10th, the Bishop of Bristol wrote to Racket over the Great Complaint, He'd received. The unidentified complainant alleged that the clergyman was never at home, that his curate lived at Blandford, that all the parish's children attended a nonconformist meeting house, as there was no church school, and that many converts were heading for the Catholic nunnery and chapel. Converts to Catholicism? God forbid! Rackett reassured the bishop, but his troubles had barely begun. Four months later, in a speech in the House of Lords, the Marquess of Lansdowne accused the £750 a year rector of residing in London for the last 30 years, during which time there had not even been a resident curate at Spettersbury or Charlton Marshall. As the Lords debated the controversial Catholic Emancipation Bill and with the Bishop of Bristol among his audience, Lord Lansdowne cited Rackett... As an example of church complacency. In a speech reported in several newspapers, he claimed the real cause of any growth in Catholicism in that corner of Dorset was the want of efficient discharge of clerical duties on the spot by a resident clergyman. In a further complaint in July 1829, the bishop was told that Rackett scarcely ever resided in his rectory that there was still no church school and that a large Catholic church is now building in your parish. Rackett continued to protest his innocence, claiming he'd lived at Spettersbury Rectory every year for 40 years, although admitting that circumstances of a private domestic nature had caused his absence at various times. Given the absence of his signature from the parish registers for months on end, year after year, this appears to have been something of an understatement. Of the alleged drift to Catholicism, Rackett claimed that of 108 Spetisbury families, five or three had always been connected with the village's convent of Augustinian nuns, while two other families and six individuals had been induced to embrace the Catholic religion. There's no evidence that Rackett received more than a few written reprimands. But there's no doubt that his lengthy stays in London enabled him to indulge his passions for physics, chemistry, botany, geology, heraldry, archaeology and antiquities. His parishioner's loss was posterity's gain, for Rackett, who died in 1841, left more than 50 years' worth of correspondence with friends who shared his interests. First published by the Dorset Records Society in 1965, these letters have now been reprinted with editions as a smart new hardback. It includes several drawings by Rackett, who was no mean artist, and who provided some of the sketches for the second edition of Hutchins' History of Dorset. These included pictures of the old rectory at East Starr, where Henry Fielding, who lived from 1707 to 1754, wrote most of his acclaimed novel Tom Jones. The house has since been demolished and replaced by Church Farm. In 1802, Rackett corresponded with Alan Fielding, one of five children born to Henry Fielding and Mary Daniel, the former maid of his first wife Charlotte. Mary was already pregnant when the novelist controversially married her just three weeks after Charlotte's death. As well as discussing the origins of characters in his father's novels, Alan revealed that the East Star House was given to his grandparents as a wedding present by his grandfather, Edmund Fielding's wealthy father-in-law. Letters to Rackett's wife and daughter, both called Dorothea, also feature in the collection. Dorothea Junior, Mrs Solly, was a friend of Mary Anning, Lyme Regis's famous fossil hunter. In June 1844, Mary reported that there had been no great storms or landslips the previous winter, and hence few fossils exposed. Lyme had, though, experienced a tremendous fire, which had destroyed 52 houses, including three inns, plus the old clock that had stood for centuries.
0: Health. Pineapple can help your hay fever. Seasonal allergies are now in full swing, and with many people suffering it is worth considering various support options, especially if you don't like the side effects of medications. There are many different types of hay fever, allergic rhinitis, which is an immune response to allergens, such as different types of pollen, as well as mould, damp, feathers, animal dander and dust mites. Histamine is an inflammatory agent found in the body in a white blood cell called a mast cell, an important part of our immune system. When they are open, they release histamine into the body and generate those familiar responses – sneezing, wheezing, sore eyes, inflamed nasal passages and sinuses – all those symptoms of allergy. Fight it with food. There are a number of familiar foods that naturally fight inflammation and help to stabilise mast cells. Pineapple contains an enzyme called bromelain, known to fight the inflammation caused by pollen – It also contains vitamin C, which is an antihistamine. Apples, broccoli, onions, coriander leaves, basil, including holy basil tea, all contain good amounts of quercetin, a type of bioflavonoid which has anti-inflammatory properties. However, apples are a no-go if you are allergic to birch pollen. In these cases, the human immune system confuses the apple and the birch pollen allergen, causing the same reactions to the nose, mouth and throat, known as the oral allergy syndrome, an itchy mouth and a swollen tongue. Watercress is a cruciferous vegetable with a peppery, tangy taste like rocket. It is considered one of the most nutrient-dense plants commonly available. A study showed that watercress inhibits 60% of all histamines released from mast cells. Pomegranates, including the juice, have a sweet but tart taste, and are used in both savoury and sweet foods. They contain polyphenols such as tannins and anticyanins and are higher in antioxidants than green tea. A study showed that they act as mast cell stabilisers. Vitamin C is a natural antihistamine and is found in oranges, kiwi, cherries, black currants, peppers, melon, kale, spinach, broccoli and parsley. Teas, chamomile or nettle, Chamomile can help inhibit histamine release and nettle is an antihistamine. Peppermint tea can help clear nasal passages. Chamomile is also great as an eye compress to cool swollen red eyes. Turmeric helps prevent mast cell activation as well as being a great antioxidant. Peaches are a potential mast cell inhibitor. Black cumin seed is an antihistamine and a powerful antioxidant. The oil is great in salad dressing or taken straight from the spoon. As well as adding useful foods to your diet, there are natural antihistamine supplements that may support you in your quest for calm eyes and a clear nose. Quercetin can be purchased in supplement form. It can inhibit the production and release of histamine by stabilising mast cells. Some of the better quercetin supplements also add vitamin C and nettle both natural antihistamines. Zinc may help prevent histamine being released from the mast cells. Zinc is key in immune health. Vitamin D is needed for mast cell stability. There is increasing evidence that gut health may be implicated in hay fever and other allergies, yet another reason for taking care of your gut. This makes sense, given over 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. The research is patchy, but growing, that the probiotic strain, LP299V, L-plantarum, may well help. Food sensitivities are often an indicator of poor gut health, producing reactions that can manifest themselves as an allergy or simply make your hay fever symptoms worse. Common foods include gluten, dairy, coffee, yeast, eggs and nuts. However, just as there are antihistamine foods, there are also foods that can generate more histamines than your body can handle, or that contain a chemical that has the ability to release histamines within the body. If you suspect this is the case, then start a food diary and keep a note of your symptoms before you see a health practitioner. You can download a tracker. Some perfumes and chemicals in bath and beauty products may also make things worse. Pair things back and choose natural products like coconut oil. For a body moisturiser.
1: When did you last ask, are you OK? By Izzy Anwell from Dorset Mind. With the Queen's Platinum Jubilee over, much of the UK geared up and prepared for the festivities that came with such a special occasion. Whether you made a cake for your local street party, fought with an old gazebo, or simply watched the celebrations on the TV, you and thousands of other people across the UK and beyond had a shared interest. It's events such as these that bring communities together, that give neighbours something to talk about over the garden fence or in the streets. But it's also at events such as these where we notice if someone isn't quite themselves. We know that one in four people experience a diagnosable mental health problem each year, which roughly equates to 16 million people across the UK. From this statistic, it's clear that you're likely to know someone in your community who's suffering in silence and could use your support. Dorset Mind actively encourages open discussion about mental health. Events like the Queen's Jubilee can be a vessel to reinforce this message and spread it even to the most rural and isolated of communities, of which we have several in Dorset. It's true when people say that a little help goes a long way. Even if it's muffled through a mouthful of cake or drowned out by a chorus of celebratory cheers, posing the seemingly insignificant question, are you okay, can go a long way to make someone feel less isolated and really make a difference. The power of this small gesture is often underestimated. It could be all that's needed to start a conversation. However, others may need a second gentle push to get them talking. And that's why it's important always to ask twice. You'll always get the truth the second time round. Although mental health is still steeped in stigma, it's important to remember that the condition of our mental health sits hand in hand with our physical health and can impact how we live our day-to-day lives. Let's not just celebrate this event for what it says it is on the local Facebook page Let's use it as an opportunity to reach out and check in on others. If you're struggling to cope, please talk to your GP. If you're in a crisis, treat it as an emergency. Call 999 immediately or the Samaritans free on 116 123. Dorset Mind offers one-to-one and group support that can help with your well-being. They aim to reduce stigma by normalising conversations, about mental health.
0: And that brings us to the end of the BV Magazine, June podcast, episode three. Join us again next month. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.
1: And from me, Jenny David. Bye-bye.